you know, I asked him, I said, uh, I said, well, uh, did you know that they, they were going to put you in prison when you went to court? And he told me, he said, yeah. I said, well, uh, I said, why did you do that then? He said, well, because he said I had the best case there was. He said there was no better case to beat this, beat this charge. There was no better case. And he said, he said, I had to prove to these other people that believed in the law, that believed in the power of the Constitution, that the Constitution is dead. And he said, I had to sacrifice myself to do that. You know, I Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel. You can find me on all the major auto pocketers and Odyssey as well. Today, my guest is Ken Silva. Uh, that little clip you guys just saw was from a documentary on the on Gordon Call, which is, you know, as you can guess, it's going to be the subject for today. He kind of kicked off the Patriot movement, uh, which if you guys have been following my channel, follow my OKC stuff uh, that is constantly referred to. Uh, so we'll kind of see where that started and kind of why it matters today and just kind of go over the, the beats of the story with my buddy Ken Silva, great journalist. He just did a good piece on Strassmeyer recently, had a three-hour interview with him. I thought that was pretty fucking dope. I do want to remind you guys, I have a piece on uh, Kenneth Trendu in Garrison that just came out in the most recent issue. So make sure you go out and get that magazine. I'll have the link in the video description when this goes public. Um, I do want to remind you guys how this works. This one is one of the one of the paywalled ones. And when I say paywalled, it goes public later. Uh, this one will probably go up a little bit sooner. That way we can, because the whole one of the main points of this episode is it's the, about to be the 40th anniversary of Gordon, Gordon Call's death. So because of that, we wanted to do something to kind of honor his memory um, because he was kind of a libertarian hero, uh, just an all-around badass. And uh, so we want to honor his memory. But how this works is this usually I'll record and then uh, I'll, it'll be a live stream for my patrons. And obviously they can watch it after the live stream later. And roughly about a week or so it, later it goes up for the public. Uh, but if you want to be able to get access to that early stuff, it's patreon.com. It's no way Jose 2020. Uh, lowest level is two bucks, highest level is 20. Uh, like I said, uh, with these, not all of them go uh, are, are paywalled. Most of them are. The vast majority of them. The, my four pony boys are. Every now and then I'll have a current events uh, stuff that isn't. I'm about to have a, I believe I should have a Dave Smith sort of debate thing that'll go up next week. That will be a live stream. Um, you know, by the time you guys see this, it, it may actually no, it won't already be out. This one should come out before it. So a little, little bit of a preview for that, I guess. But at the twenty dollar level, it's my sponsors. My sponsors are Mikel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. So Jeremy has an Etsy store, Etsy.com slash shop slash raising liberty. Follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Rhymes. Also, my co-host on Tower Gang Toad. You can follow him on Twitter at Tower Gang Toad. You can also check out the Tower Gang show on YouTube, uh, you know, Rumble, all major auto podcasters as well. Uh, Spotify, it's got video there. A lot of people like to watch it on Spotify. That's offensive comedy, so uh, don't expect to get the same stuff here as you do over there. Uh, different, different stuff, different strokes for different folks. So if that's not your thing, don't do it. Uh, also, have Zach Overacker at Z O V E R A C K on Twitter, and then Mike Degelish, and then Lindsay, who she's covering OKC stuff over on TikTok. Uh, she just lost her account recently, but she's got a new one, Lindsay OKC, a uh, Lindsay with an E. Uh, and also, I got a new one, uh, Matt. He wanted to say incognito, but he wanted me to say he's Matt repping the two one nine. Raise hell, praise Dale. That's what he wanted me to. Uh, that's what he wanted me to say. That's what's what I'm doing. Uh, but yeah, patreon.com is no way Jose 2020. Make sure you get those geeky shirts at toplobs.com. Use, uh, use Jose at checkout for 10% off with that. Enough of that, Grifton. Let's get Ken in here. What's up, bud? How you doing? 
Hey, not too bad. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, it's a pleasure. Always. Anytime. Uh, you're always, you're doing the Lord's work out here. So, uh, you know, you, you came to me and you said, you have the story. I go, okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it's not that too common. People come to me with an idea. Most time I just ignore them, <laughs> but, uh, if I went to you, I'm like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're coming to me, I trust it. So with that, we're covering Gordon call. I played a little clip at the beginning. Yuri, uh, Yuri call who is still in prison to this day. Um, he was supposed to have gotten out already, which, uh, I guess it's kind of ties into why this matters, which we'll probably talk about later. But uh, yeah, um, you know, go ahead and remind the uh, remind the audience who you are. I know you've been on a few times, but uh, let them know who you are, what you do, uh, why you matter. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I'm a reporter for HeadlineUSA.com. I also publish a lot of my articles for the Libertarian Institute. Done uh, numerous reports on the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, like you said, I recently had the. Uh, the pleasure, I guess you might say, of interviewing the notorious uh, Andy Strassmeyer about you know his role in that whole that whole fiasco, and uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much my beat: right wing extremism and its interaction with the federal government. Yep, I, I'm not gonna lie; I've been kicking around in my head a way to approach this because I was like, "That's so such good stuff that I'm like, God, how, how do I cover it? Because I kind of want to cover it, but I've also beat Strassmeyer and OKC stuff to death. But I'm like, I kind of like want to figure out a way to add that to the OKC playlist uh, as well. Uh, I'm like, I'm trying to think of an angle. Uh, just do like a Strassmeyer exclusive episode or something. I don't know. Maybe I can figure out a way to make it work, make it a little bit uh, a little bit different uh, than the way that me and uh, me and Richard covered it. Because when we covered it, we were obviously more focused on like how it ties into OKC, which obviously if we did cover it, we would still probably mm -hmm. touch it a little bit. But I, I guess in my head, I'm more formulating like what is his, what is his, uh, I guess not alibi, but what's his story and, and what is uh, likely the reality. So maybe we'll have to do that later. I've been kicking that around. Uh, but yeah, uh, great work. Uh, glad to have you on here. Uh, so let's get into Gordon Call. Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> Sure. So Gordon Call is a tax protester who was murdered by the federal government. Uh, the 40th year anniversary of this is going to be on Saturday, uh, June 3rd. Um, I think your listeners and viewers should be interested in this case, A, because he's a legitimate case of uh, from the libertarian philosophy. He was a total victim and I think a borderline actual hero. Uh, people should look to this guy as like, a, a, you know, a really stand up dude. Um, but even more broadly, his death kind of sparked the uh, Patriot movement, as you mentioned, these uh, this loose network of right wing militias throughout the 80s, which sparked a counter reaction from the FBI. The FBI launched its PATCON operation in response to the militias and uh this eventually, obviously, uh, culminated with the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, you get into some specifics. So uh, after Gordon Call uh, died on June 3rd, 1983, and we can get into more details about the controversies about what the FBI and U.S. Marshals did, uh, it was just a month later that the Aryan Nations had their annual World Congress. And this was... Um, the year the Aryan Nations really blew up on the national spotlight uh, because of the Gordon Call case and because of a leader of the Aryan Nations or a leader of that movement named Louis Beam, 
he actually declared war on the federal government and had a bunch of people sign some kind of you know phony uh, uh, a de- their version of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, I'll give you a quote from what Lewis Beam said of that day. He said, "We are at war. We must pledge our blood for the new nation. There's nothing we won't do to bring about the new kingdom, uh, the new nation." Uh, now, Lewis Beam is a really interesting guy because uh, Richard Booth could probably explain this in more depth, but he's pretty closely tied to the Oklahoma City bombing itself. Um, he coined the term, I think it was like uh, leaderless resistance, where all these militias could work together without having uh, a central hierarchy. And he's also uh, tied to our friend uh, Andy Strassmeyer and Strassmeyer's buddy Dave Holloway uh, both worked for Lewis Beam at one point in Texas in the late 80s, uh, right around the time Pat Con uh, was getting off the ground. Um, so Lewis Beam, he declares war. Um, the Aryan nations, there was like this offshoot called the Order, which was a legitimate right-wing terrorist uh, group. And they would rob banks to fund the um, fund the Aryan nations, fund the KKK, try to, I guess the ultimate idea was to have a white ethno state up in the Northwest uh, Pacific. Um, these Now, these guys were legitimately pieces of shit. They like assassinated a Jewish radio host. Um, they were planning to actually kill people and harm people. Blow up dams was one of their, their goals. Um, they get taken out by the FBI eventually in the mid to late eighties. Uh, but the FBI was not satisfied with just, you know, taking down a legitimately bad group. The FBI wanted to take out the entire right wing militia network. And so they charged, uh, about like, I think 20 of them with sedition, which is relevant now with, you know, the prod boys and oath keepers sedition trials, Uh, This is 1987, I believe, and their sedition case was really flimsy. They relied on a member, I believe, of the Order or the Covenant Sword, another militia who had flipped, but this guy was totally unreliable. Uh, Their sedition case collapses. The government's really embarrassed, and so this is right after their sedition case collapses is when Andy Strassmeyer enters the country they launched their PatCon operation, and as you've covered on your show in depth, PatCon eventually leads to uh, Oklahoma City bombing. So that's really why uh, Gordon Call matters in this uh, in this 15-year saga. Yeah, and uh, Beam, I, if I remember correctly, because he was kind of a lesser character in the uh, whole OKC stuff, because I believe he was on like Death Row or something at that time, or maybe that was a different guy. Uh, I kind of get mixed up these uh, Nazi, the neo-Nazi figures, especially yeah. the lesser characters. But I know he had, I, mean, I say I know, but I, I believe he uh, had some weird CIA, uh, you know, maybe not connections, maybe might be putting it too strongly, uh, illusions uh, maybe. Uh, like it implied, uh, I believe even, uh, I want to say the leaders, leaderless resistance uh, theory or something he, he even said came from like a CIA thing or something. So then it kind of makes my conspiracy part of me tick and think maybe the whole sedition thing was kind of like a, it was almost like they went too hard for a reason, possibly. I don't know. Or maybe they're just that stupid. It's hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, 
the guy you're referring to is Richard Wayne Snell. He was the guy that was on death row scheduled to okay. be executed on April 19th, 1995. You know, the day of the bombing, obviously he seemed to have knowledge about it. Uh, Lois Beam. Yeah. I think he has some ties to the U S army going back to like the fifties or sixties. And as Richard could probably explain better, his leaderless resistance, it was a similar concept found in CIA documents. I think something relation, related to maybe even op, uh, uh, Operation Gladio in Europe. And at the time, it, it, you know, all this is public now, but it's like, how would Lois Beam coin the exact same strategy that was secretly being used uh, by the CIA? Uh, you mentioned, I guess, um, weird uh, conspiracy or, you know, you're the light bulb going off in your head about, you know, things that glow, but um, uh, two more interesting points after Lewis beam declared this war. Uh, I heard you on your recent show talking to Kyle Serafin about pipe bombs and mm-hmm. January 6th, yep. the, the Langan ARA case. Well, the judge who prosecuted uh, Yori call and some of the other people involved in the Gordon Call shootout, uh, he had pipe bombs <laughs> sent to his house and his offices um, in in eighty five and eighty six. And yeah, when I was researching for this show, that's one thing I definitely wanted to bring up because that sounds like a Fed operation for sure. That like the judge actually didn't get killed, but some pipe bombs get sent to his house, and that that glows to me <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Always the inert pipe bombs that don't go off. It uh, exactly. makes you wonder. Yeah, it was uh, for me. It did. Uh, God, uh, it was. What do you? What do you think? Uh, I mean, not to get. I get too off track because I was kind of like making my head scratch. I was kind of scratching my head when in that episode, kind of like thinking, like, why? Like with the ARA, what? What is the with the pipe bombs? What was the purpose? Wasn't it part of like their robberies they were using them for or something? It just seems like. What what was the purpose of the pipe bombs there? Like I understand the purpose with like the judge with like a January sixth. If we're being conspiratorial, like what would be the purpose? It's obviously, but I didn't really. I guess I I didn't really. For me, I'm kind of like draw the connection. The only for me, the only connection was the pipe bomb. But I didn't understand the angle of like why, because obviously the ARA was likely, uh, or, or or at least uh, heavily implied by John Matthews was likely some sort of uh, patcon op uh, ARA. Uh, so, I mean, what, like, I mean, obviously they'd be probably playing by similar playbooks. Like they don't really change much over the years as we could see, you know, uh, do you have any theories as to why, what was the pipe bombs or was just like an additional little flare they added? I, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah. The, the idea of the pipe bombs is they rob the banks and leave the pipe bombs. So the cops have to worry about the pipe bombs instead of catching hmm. the robbers and, uh, these pipe bombs are fake, according to Donna Langan, who's in prison over this whole thing. Langan was set to have uh, Dr. Frederick Whitehurst, who was like, he worked in the FBI crime lab, and he came out as a whistleblower about the FBI uh, tampering and just having shoddy evidence and all these high-profile cases. Langan said that Whitehurst says that those pipe bombs that the ARA used were inert, which is more circumstantial evidence that the whole thing was uh, a fed op. 
Yeah. Okay. Now I, I can see the connection now. Now it makes sense. Cause I didn't know what role they played in the bank robberies. Mm-hmm. All right. I guess let's get a little bit back on track. Let's get back to Gordon call. I guess we should probably start with a little early life, uh, kind of what, how he ended up with his ideology, kind of where he's coming from. We've kind of alluded to him being a libertarian hero. Uh, and it's just kind of, you know, where he's coming from. And I think if you understand history, it is kind of a unique time. If you did have kind of a libertarian, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, change or uh, coming to Jesus? I guess actually worked for Gordon Call in this situation. That, that actually works well for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, why it would make sense? Because with the World War II right around, I believe that was like Great New Deal type stuff. I know a lot of welfare programs were coming into pl- t- uh, place around that time. A lot of weird, uh, you know, the, the federal government was expanding rapidly at that point. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll let you go from there. I think you know, know what I'm getting at. Yeah, exactly. And you hit on it. Call was a World War II hero who was a pilot in the Pacific. And, you know, the Pacific arena of World War II, like those were the men, like the man's men, like they made the the German war seem to pale in comparison. I think he had like two or three Purple Hearts, a couple of like, like, he was a decorated veteran. Uh, He even had an experience where he had to kill one of his buddies uh, who uh, was shooting at him because his friend thought he was a, a Jap and Gordon didn't want to kill the American, but he was forced to shoot this guy down out of self-defense. And he felt like really bad about it, which kind of gives you an insight into his personality. Like he wasn't a cold-blooded killer. He, he really, you know, it was a last resort thing. Um, in any event, he, he comes home from the war and he gets the sense that what he was told, that he was fighting for freedom, was total bullshit. I think in that dec- documentary, Death and Taxes, he even was talking in like the 60s about how FDR knew that or would provoke the, J- the Japan, uh, Japanese people into attacking Pearl Harbor. I mean, it, that's pretty based right there in the 60s. <laughs> like he's deep into conspiracy theories already. Um And I think the breaking point was when he realized that the income taxes were funding expanded uh, abortion, which went again against his deeply uh, seated religious beliefs. So in 1969, he writes a letter to the IRS saying, I'm no longer doing any business with you guys. You are the tithe collectors for the synagogue of Satan, which I love that line. (laughs) And he, he told him to fuck off. And, and they did for a while. They didn't actually bother Gordon after he told them this in, in, a, in an open letter. It wasn't until, I think, 1976, he goes on television with other tax protesters and starts uh, preaching the gospel of tax resistance, saying this is a plank of the Communist Manifesto. It's satanic. We can't be funding the people who want to destroy us. And now when you have this guy on TV as possibly some kind of public figure is when the U.S. government really takes an interest to him. So it wasn't long after that that he gets indicted, I think, for failing. He didn't even owe money, by the way. He just didn't file. And so he gets indicted. He gets sent to jail for a year for not filing his income tax. And in jail... Uh, Now, this is key to the later story. He suffers two heart attacks, and another buddy who was on TV 
uh, also suffered a heart attack and that guy died. Gordon survived, but he believed that the government poisoned him to induce the heart attacks to uh, kill him and his friend. And after that, he said, I'm never going back to prison again, no matter what. No. Norman Pearl much? <laughs> <laughs> and and whether, whether or not this is true, uh, the important thing is Gordon Call believed this to be true. Um, so after he gets out of jail, uh, he's on probation and uh, he doesn't even believe he was justly convicted. So he's ignoring his, uh, you know, pro uh, probation uh, requirements. And so another warrant is put out for his arrest for, or not probation, parole, sorry, a parole violation. And this warrant is outstanding for maybe two or three years until 1983 when the U.S. Marshals decide for whatever reason that they need to get this guy. It's urgent. And so that's that's when the shootout is about to happen. Um, and we can get into that now or if you have any questions, we can pause for a bit. One question, I guess uh, I, I wanted to get, it seems you've dug a little bit more, obviously, than just the documentary. I mean, honestly, that's about as deep as I've been able to dig. Uh, but uh, one one point they brought up a few times, I'm kind of wondering, I'm assuming there's probably some credence to this, um, but they, the point that they smeared, them, they, they smeared him with throughout in that kind of rough group is they were kind of alluding to they were like, essentially racist neo-nazis whatever what what are your thoughts on that were there any truth to that because i would assume you know a group of hillbillies are kind of getting together saying you know we're not paying tax together yeah there's probably going to be some bad elements in there uh that may have some some silly ideas uh and you know i i don't know i mean you got to think it we're in a different time nowadays so I don't know. In a small country, in a small country town, if they're like, I don't know, we want to keep the Mexicans out or whatever, you're like, uh, okay, whatever. Like, <laughs> who cares? But like, you know, what what are your thoughts on that? Are there are there anything to that? Is that anything that you know? Do do you feel that actually reflects Gordon in any way, or or not really? Well, yeah, I'm glad you did mention that because we are treating this guy as a hero. I do think he is a hero, but people are complicated. I mean, he did believe in that Christian identity bullshit. Um, he believed in Zog. Uh, Christian identity is the idea that white people from England and Northern Europe are like the true Israelites and the Jewish people are the spawns of Satan and the fake Israelites and black people are like, uh, I think they were some strands of Christian identity refers they, to them. I think they descended, he, he might believe they descended from Ham. Because I used to be, I, I was very conservative Christian growing up, and I remember hearing that thing growing up. Because if anyone remembers, Noah had multiple sons, and one of them was cursed, the son Ham. Uh, and there are some strains of Christian belief that believe, like, you know, certain races or whatever are descendants of Ham, and that's why they've had it so shitty. And, uh, you know, they may even attach other racist ideology to it. Uh, uh, but that might be where you're going with that. Yeah, that sounds right. And it, he was he was a legitimate racist. Uh, actually, I think on the day of the shootout, they were have they were having an argument. They wanted to set up some kind of county posse comitatus, and the argument was like, "Well, is this ideological or is it race based?" Gordon was saying, "Hey, no blacks allowed in here," and some other people disagreed with that. Uh, but I will mention that, like, while these were his political and religious beliefs, 
uh, you know, he was a, he was a bro. Like he had black friends, he had Latino friends. He would farm in North Dakota in the summertime, and then because he didn't make much money, again he didn't know the IRS shit because he didn't make anything. He was an oil worker in the summer, and that's when he worked with a bunch of Mexicans and black people. And you know, by the accounts I've read, you know, he'd give the shirt off your back. He just had deep-seated religious and political views. So he was never any threat to minorities. He didn't want to persecute them. He just he believed what he believed and he wanted to be left alone. Yeah, which I mean that's where it breaks some people's brains uh when you get into stuff like this that cuz we've gotten so accustomed to when you hear the word racist we're supposed to go oh like okay well if if this guy's a racist but you know, I'm of the opinion that if you're racist, but you in in no way intend any harm upon anyone, who cares? <laughs> I, I definitely agree. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, whatever. Everyone's probably had some family member that has some silly ideas, but they're not out there doing anything with them. They're, I mean, especially with him, he wasn't advocating any sort of political movements. So if, I mean, hell, if you're looking at a libertarian society or an anarchist society, if you're a racist, it's kind of like, who cares? Like, I mean, they're not trying to use a government against you. And if they're not trying to personally use any violence against you, I don't know, maybe you just won't be friends. <laughs> like, exactly. Really... exactly. And I think um, people should keep that in mind, because I think when the anniversary hits this Saturday, you're going to see a lot of articles from uh, places like the ADL, the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, probably drawing a line from Gordon Call to J6 and say, and it's really going to focus on the odious aspects of Call's personal life, but none of that is relevant to the story that we're discussing about his his tax resistance um, or him being murdered. I mean, he's that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Yeah, and he was what sixty three at the time of his death, I believe, something like that. So it was like in eighty three, eighty four, eighty five. Whenever he died, I forget. So I mean. You know, I don't know. Do some math, like I mentioned, kind of alluding to your old grandpa with some bad ideas. Like, in North know, he was a, yeah, he was literally a World War II vet. He's probably yeah. gonna have some weird, some wonky ideas when it comes to race. Let's be real, yeah. <laughs> as yeah. most did at that time, uh, especially the country folk. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that that's you know a smart take, uh, but uh, I don't know. I guess I don't necessarily take it. Think it's really necessarily all that. I don't know, uh, repugnant or whatever you want, whatever word you want to attach to it. It's kind of a whatever, who cares? Um, but all right, let's, uh, I guess we'll keep moving on. I'm trying to think if there's anything else in there in that time I wanted to touch on. Um, yeah, no, I think that's it. Let's move on to, we'll get into the, oh, I did want to provide for context. When we were talking about that, uh, first case, uh, that clip I played at the beginning was a son Yuri in reference to, uh, that kind of his motivation of why he did in the first place, kind of how he knew he was going to go to jail. He knew it was going to happen and he did it anyways to set an example to kind of say to the world, like, Hey, uh, constitution's dead, uh, which I means it's been dead for a long time. It was probably dead long before call, but you know, it's kind of one of those things where people need to get it. And I think, you know, I think as time goes on, people, more and more people are getting it. Uh, but yeah. Um, all right, let's, I guess, get into the shootout. Uh, I know there's obviously, multiple different takes between the law enforcement's version of um, the events and obviously the 
uh, calls family, uh, you know, sequence of, or a version of events. Okay. Sorry. One thing I wanted to touch on real quick before we get into the shootout is the whole climate of the early 1980s era. And if there's any economists that listen to your show or aspiring economists, I have a thesis idea of how the Austrian business cycle ties into the Oklahoma city bombing. And, um, I guess the, the reason that a lot of these people believed what call believed is because there was a farming crisis going on in the 1980s. And this is because this, the boom bust cycle in the 1970s, interest rates were low. A lot of farmers were encouraged by the department of agriculture to take on massive loans because you know, farmland short on supply, the value is only going to increase. This is a no-brain investment. So there were um, quite a bit of farmers taking massive loans. And I guess I'm reading here, the book is called Bitter Harvest. It's about the Gordon Call case. It's, it's pretty good. It's written by a normie. There are some things I disagree with, but they do a good job explaining the farming crisis. And it's actually in 1980, North Dakota had the second highest number of millionaires per capita in the United States. And a lot of this was due to a farming boom. But in 1981, the bubble burst. Um, land that was valued at $2,100 an acre fell to $700 an acre. Uh, meanwhile, you know, pricing, uh, food prices weren't going up. So like they're not making more money and the, the value of the land is falling. And at one point in 1983, the year of the shootout, there were three farms closing in North, North Dakota per day. And that's North Dakota. It's a really small state. So this was absolutely devastating to the community. And like for, a, you know, these like manly men, like losing a farm is the most embarrassing terrible thing that could ever happen. Like you're not only losing your job, you're losing your house. There was like a epidemic of suicides, um, spousal abuse, um, abusing kids. And a lot of people were turning, uh, you know, looking for answers. And that's why a lot of these people ended up in militias. They ended up in ex um, extremist movements and, and things like that. Yeah. So which, I, oh, sorry, yeah. Go ahead. oh I just wanted to yeah, kind of describe the, the climate and why people might be willing to get into shootouts with the government. Like it was a pretty desperate time. Yeah. You, you bring up a good point and I guess uh, it reminds me of something. I, I mean, obviously he wasn't thriving because uh, as we alluded to, he kind of sort of didn't even really owe the, them any taxes because he didn't really make enough for that. But he seemed to be one of the few people that kind of was getting by uh, because of the fact that he was turning and he, at least he attributed it in his, uh, or at least his wife attributed to the fact that they weren't taking those loans because those loans kind of, uh, it's my understanding, uh, that those kind of hemmed you up to where you had to abide by certain rules and you produce certain, uh, produce or whatever, whatever the rules were at the time. Whereas he didn't have those, he didn't take the free government money. And because of that, he was able to operate a little bit more flexibly, uh, and I think was able to kind of scrape by as opposed to many of the other people who didn't. And he had a large family and, you know, seemed to somehow get by. He was kind of a old school agorist, if you will, I guess, you know, I guess he's more of a sovereign citizen, but, you know, still same idea, roughly, uh, sort of, there, you know, a little bit of a distinction, but, 
Uh, usually the agorists don't go as nuts about it as Gordon does and flaunted about, but, <laughs> but yeah, uh, same idea. So yeah, I, I think, uh, there, there's something to that, uh, the economic take there, there might be something to be said there. Uh, it definitely is an, an interesting, interesting things to be drawn from there for sure. But, uh, I, I guess, I guess let's go ahead and get into the shootout, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I guess we'll have to dissect the different takes and kind of what happened because it is really just, I guess, who you believe and kind of what evidence you want to take. And yeah, it's it's a very murky uh, case and we still don't know exactly what happened. It depends who you ask, but we do know that. Uh, so the calls, the, the entire family were actually at a meeting earlier that day about the farming crisis. And somebody, according to Gordon Call, tipped him off that the U.S. Marshals were planning to ambush him. Uh, he wrote this in an affidavit that he would later like tuck into uh, a farm where he was hiding. He like hid it in the wall and it was discovered years later. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. But he said somebody tipped him off. He wouldn't say who. Um, so he and his a couple of his friends get into one car, his wife, his kid, and a guy named Scott Fall, who's also still in prison over this, get into another car and they leave the meeting and they're heading outside of uh, Medina, North Dakota, very, I think, town of maybe 500 to 1,000 people at the time. Um, and they see flashing red lights over the hill and they know that the U.S. Marshals had set up a roadblock to apprehend call. And I should say, um, again, it's not clear why they wanted to take this guy by force. The warrant had been sitting on the bottom of a, a, a stack of papers on somebody's desk for years. But all of a sudden, they feel like they have to get this guy. And it also was revealed that there was an all-points bulletin about call saying this guy's armed and dangerous. Don't try to apprehend them which is actually, I guess, apparently a dog whistle to law enforcement. They're like, oh, if you get this guy, you'll be a hero. Um, there was reports that he, they were supposedly going to um, stop an auction. There was somebody's a farmer was having his land auctioned off, and the marshals were allegedly afraid that Gordon and his uh, posse comitatus were going to interrupt the auction. Uh, but that's bullshit. It was just, you know, for a... Uh, uh, a parole violation that they set up this massive roadblock on. So the calls see this, they're about a mile away from the roadblock. They try to turn around an unmarked uh, Dodge Ram pulls behind them to block them from turning around. Uh, the calls get out of the car. Uh, the wife, by the way, just tucks herself into a ball in I think the wheel well of one of the cars and um, an armed standoff ensues. Uh, Yori Call, the son, Scott Fall, and Gordon Call all have, um, I think, mini 14s, so like kind of hunting rifles. They use 223 ammunition. I guess you could, you're probably more knowledgeable about that. I guess, like, kind of like an AR 15, but old, more old school. Um, uh, U.S. Marshals and local police steadily, more and more are arriving. I think about eight or nine minutes passes. The tensions are high. And I think um, somebody might have smacked, like there was a sound uh, that almost was like a gunshot. And nobody knows who shot first, uh, but a shootout ensues. 
Uh, Yori, the son, gets hit twice. And then, according to Gordon, he's the one that took out two marshals, injured a local cop. And um, that, that was basically the shootout in a nutshell. There's a lot of dispute and controversy about who shot first, who killed who. Uh, some people claim that Scott Fall um, took a shotgun and after one of the guys was already wounded, point blank, shot him in the head and like exploded his skull, which would be pretty heinous. Um, in, in any event, after that, uh, Gordon Call, uh, they take his son, Yori, and a couple other people to the local hospital and then Call uh, escapes and he's, he's out on the lam. And that, that's that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, the Scott Fall thing, they found that to be bullshit, though, in court. And they, I mean, he still obviously ended up getting in lots of trouble. But I believe the uh, the execution thing, I, if I remember correctly, they said they kind of showed that to be complete. Like, uh, at least they didn't find enough evidence to uh, convict on that, uh, that specific aspect of it, I believe, if I recall correctly. That's right. Yeah, he yeah. was uh, they were him and Yori were acquitted of first degree murder. Uh, they're still convicted of secondary degree murder. But yeah, that's right. The shotgun story was debunked during the trial. Yeah, and uh, I believe the officers were and the marshals were all in plain clothes, or at least some of them were. Uh, I believe there was contention between uh, how they announced themselves and such. Uh, I guess according to uh, you know the calls uh, account of it, it was a, a lot more just kind of like you know get in the ground, we're gonna fucking kill you kind of thing, yep. and not even like a hey we're cops whatever. Uh, you know, uh, and then, but obviously they, you know, portrayed it as the professional way you're supposed to go about it. Um, I mean, so what, what is your, uh, rough take on that? What, what are your speculations? Do you have any strong or you just really just, you can't even sift through the information? I'm still, yeah, I'm still trying to sift through the information to, uh, make an assessment as far as who shot first, I guess it should be noted that that doesn't really matter because if you pull, your gun on a cop and pointed at him, they have every right legally to blow you away. So even if Yori didn't shoot first, he could still be convicted of murder because you can't pull your weapon on an officer of the law. And I will also say um, that even if they were playing close officers and unmarked cars, a couple of the cars were marked and obviously they saw the flashing roadblock ahead. They knew it was law enforcement and, um, and they had gotten the tip earlier that the U S marshals are going to try to ambush you or arrest you. So I think it's pretty fair to say that they knew they weren't getting ambushed by random assholes in North Dakota. This, they, they knew that these guys were, were law enforcement in some capacity or another. That still doesn't excuse the government ambushing you for not filing your fucking taxes. Yes, uh, and, and and you are right. Legally speaking, it doesn't matter. But I, I know for me and my audience, it kind of does because, yeah. you know, like I, for one, like aside from the fact that you might get in trouble legally, I kind of don't really care if they're a cop or not. It's kind of just a, you know, to me, it's just a group of individuals ambushed another indiv a group of individuals so, and what were the reasons for it? The reasons were he didn't give them money they wanted. Uh, so it's basically just highway robbery. It's <laughs> yeah. all this is. Yeah, not only that, like I, we, like I said, he didn't owe money. He, 
they were arresting him for not filing his taxes, which um, these sovereign citizens and guys like Peter Schiff's dad would argue unsuccessfully, obviously. But that's a violation of the Fourth Amendment, because if you're forced to file your taxes, that's like uh, you could be being forced to incriminate yourself. So, yeah, it's like the most dubious thing to even arrest somebody, let alone display that kind of show of force. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I guess from there, now we have him on the lamb. Uh, Yuri, I guess, uh, actually, no, I'm trying to decide, do we, I guess we could go kind of towards the court uh, angle. Uh, Yuri got screwed. Um, uh, actually, I don't know. I don't, do you want to go into the nuances of the court stuff? Cause there were a lot of, they basically got screwed. It sounded like they got railroaded by the legal system here. I mean, we knew, you know, by the facts here, you know, we obviously said, you know, you pulled guns on cops, you're screwed already. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I guess it's just a matter of to what degree. But it seems they really got screwed. Uh, I know the, the judge had a lot of conflicts of interest between, like, multiple no i believe it was the the judge had a conflict of interest between what the dead one of the dead federal marshals there's also conflict of interest between i want to say the prosecutor and one of the jurors uh i mean does uh, this ringing bells for you yeah i think the prosecutor knew one of the jurors and mm-hmm. that was never disclosed uh yori actually wrote something mother's day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Interesting, in 2013, alleging that the judge was pretty much in bed with the FBI, I haven't read it closely enough or fact-checked that to confidently speak on that. Um, But I'll say at the outset that uh, current character who uh, has cloaked himself in the so-called MAGA movement, uh, Rudy Giuliani was an assistant uh, U.S. attorney at this time, and he was kind of supervising the prosecution, much as Merrick Garland supervised the OKC case um, in the early weeks of McVeigh's trial, he was kind of liaison between Maine Justice and D.C. and the um, local prosecutors or the the attorneys assigned to North Dakota. And again, in this Bitter Harvest book, Giuliani says at the outset of the case that we are looking to nail all these guys. The uh, We are looking to impose the harshest penalties possible, and you better not embarrass the DOJ by letting anybody off the hook. And what does that tell us? That, does, that tells us that the government was not interested in serving justice. They were interested in serving punishment. And this is Giuliani. This guy is, he, he pretends to be a patriot now, but people need to know what he did um, in the 80s. Uh, just absolutely disgusting. Um, one other point on the aspect of fair trial. I don't have the details off the top of my head, but I know that a juror came out in 1999 and filed an affidavit saying she didn't believe it was a fair trial. I guess she was having health problems and she says she didn't have courage to stand up the judge 
at the time. She was under the wrong impression of what jurors were allowed to do or say or read outside of court. Um, and But then I think 15 years later, 16 years later, she files this affidavit saying, no, if it wasn't a fair trial. If I had to do it again, I would not have uh, convicted for murder at least. Yeah. Uh, who was the goofy looking Dutch boy? I forget. You know, the one with the Dutch boy haircut, kind of like right across the, and he, cause he's a, I feel like an interesting component of the trial because he was on tape to basically essentially straight up saying that like, yeah, they completely coached me and told me this is what you got to say and plead guilty. And, you know, we'll give you a good, uh, I, I don't know if he got com off completely scot-free or just a little bit of time. I forget uh, what the deal was with him. I believe he was just one of the family friends or something. And he just, he basically completely said, yeah, they just co coached me. And he, like, uh, at one point, I know Yuri was talking and said that, uh, when they asked him what he was pleading guilty for, he didn't even know, uh, you know, and he was just kind of laughing about it, you know, later like, Oh, this is how this works. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah. So that the guy's name is Ver Vernon Wagner and he was in one of the cars with the calls and he was involved in the shootout. And yeah, he flipped. The government pressured him to uh, strike a plea deal in exchange for testifying against Yori and Scott Fall. And as you mentioned, he agreed to plead guilty, but he wasn't sure exactly what it was. And this is another thing that Yori wrote about from prison about 10 years ago. He said there was a, a secret hearing before the before he publicly testified, the judge uh, approved the agreement. And um, I'm trying to read through my notes exactly uh, exactly what transpired according to Yori, but I'm not finding it now. But yeah, Yori believed that pretty much they railroaded this guy. And oh, they, they kind of rehearsed exactly what he'd say during the trial, which I guess is highly inappropriate. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, another bizarre aspect of this case. Yeah, they never do that. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It, it's if you watch the documentary, it just it made me laugh because the way he he talks about it is really goofy, and he's just like he just he's saying the quiet part out very loud, <laughs> and doesn't have any shame. It doesn't. It's like he doesn't even have the intelligence to realize you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> so, yeah. Which is great, uh, but you know whatever. It just kind of I guess exposes the legal system at least in these type of situations. Um, but yeah, and I believe he actually didn't even do anything. I think he was one of the guys, if I remember correctly, uh, like him and uh, he, him and the mother both did like nothing. And they both, uh, and the mother almost got in trouble, which I mean, I don't know, for me, it that was kind of the part that really messed with me like, hearing the story, all the other, all the people surrounding the situation that got legal in legal trouble. Because I guess it's my opinion, like, I guess I get it. Technically, it's against the law, but like, if you really think about it, like, if you don't agree with someone, you know, in some criminal charge, and you let them live in your house or hide or whatever, like, what what's the victim here? You obviously disagree. So, like, I, I don't know. It, 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 from a libertarian theory perspective, it, it it's kind of just fucking retarded, really. I guess. <laughs> like, I I don't know. I I find it like pretty disgusting especially when we were talking about something like family so like the idea that like 
I be, I don't know what charge she got, but I was like the the mother or almost got, but I would assume it was something along the lines of harboring a few to few. Charge her with murder, Jose. Oh, did they? <laughs> oh, did they? murder i assumed it was harboring a fugitive or something because i know they got some people for that it's so so disgusting uh so yeah yori scott and gordon were actually in the armed standoff this uh wagner guy we were just talking about he had a gun but i don't think he used it at all um then there was one other guy who didn't even have a gun he was eventually quitted acquitted but they charged everybody with murder because they said this was a premeditated conspiracy to go get into a shoot off. And that's why you bring your fucking wife. It's yeah, I- idiotic. I think they probably charged her with murder because Gordon call escaped and they wanted to get call to turn himself in maybe, or they're pressuring his family or just to fuck with them. Um, but she, to the, I guess, jury's credit, they did acquit her because it would be just insane. I mean, she, like I said, she curled up inside, like under the glove box. She was totally terrified. Uh, she, her son almost died that day. And then they put her in jail. Uh, they trot her out like some kind of KGB show trial saying, oh, Gordon, please come home. And as you see in the documentary, she regrets that. She regretted that for the rest of her the rest of her life. So yeah, that's, that's what the government will do to you. They'll go after your family. There's, they won't, there's no level to which they won't stoop. Yeah, it is really gross. It's pretty awful, you know, especially if you're looking at it from her perspective and how this all went down. But all right, we got Gordon on the lamb now. Uh, I guess kind of run us through that. And then I guess we'll obviously inevitably get to his uh, unfortunate demise. Yeah. So this is kind of the lore of, uh, or yeah, the, I guess the legend of Gordon Call is how he escaped. And um, a lot of his religious Christian identity buddies believe it might have been like divinely inspired. So apparently he he drops his kid, his wife, everybody off at the clinic. Him and Scott fall, uh, go on the lamb. They sleep in an abandoned farm that night. And that's when Gordon writes a bunch about what happened on a trash bag, leaves it for somebody to find. Uh, Scott Fall turns himself in. He's got a wife. I don't know if that's the right movement or right move or not, because he's his wife left him. He's still in prison to this day, being held, I view, illegally past his his parole date. Um, but so the next day, there's like a heavy fog sets in, and that really helped him get out of North Dakota because there's cops everywhere. It's swarming. There's roadblocks on every major escape going from North Dakota to South Dakota. Uh, Somehow he navigates through the back roads. At one point he's even at a roadblock and he said the cops, you know, he's one of the only guys with this ugly green Jeep and the cops look at him turned away. He goes through the roadblock real quick. He wasn't sure if the cops are scared of him because he's his reputation, or maybe they somehow didn't find him, or I don't know. They Maybe they were sympathizers and, and let him go. Um, in any event, he goes all the way down to Arkansas, and um, Arkansas, you know, a lot of militia guys, a lot of patriots there who were his friends from when he worked in the oil fields in Texas too. He, he had a lot of people who helped keep him hidden for the next couple months, and one weird, spooky aspect of this that I don't know what to make of is that he was hiding for a while, like a month, 
um, I think in uh, in Mena, Arkansas, in 1983, in Mena, Arkansas, is where um, the Contra cocaine smuggling operation was running out of. Like Barry Seal would fly over um, the Mena, Arkansas airport, like drop bundles of cash, bundles of cocaine. That's where they were training the Contras. Uh, the the relevance of that might be probably is nothing. I just think it's a cool intersection of history and these two wild cases going on and tiny little Mina at the same time. Um, in any event, he eventually leaves Mina, um, winds up in another town in uh, Arkansas. Yeah, he's staying there. Um, the FBI is closing in on him. There's informants within the Patriot movement in Arkansas that are tipping off the feds that this guy's somewhere, somebody's hiding him. Uh, there's planes buzzing over uh, the, his hideout. And uh, yeah, that brings us to June 3rd, 1983, which is the day where the feds finally realize uh, exactly where he is. I believe one of the places he had been hiding uh the, the guy who had harbored him, his daughter sold him out to the FBI for like $25,000 or something. Some poor like Arkansas lady in her twenties, probably with kids or something. So he, he got sold out and and the feds tracked him down uh, to, to the home on uh, June 3rd, 83. Yeah. Uh, it made me think of Washington crossing the Delaware with this, his escape, oh, yeah. <laughs> this, this whole escape thing. Uh, it's kind of funny, and uh, it makes me wonder. I believe I, re I recall some uh, one or a couple people. And maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit here. Of like, kind of like, because obviously we've already alluded to him dying, and kind of like why some people think he died is because he may have known more. Obviously, we obviously there's enough motivation already uh, to kill him because of the fact that he's kind of like killed some federal marshals and kind of made an ass out of all of them and taken them on this whole big, you know, roundabout around the country, uh, which, you know, that's going to piss off the feds. Uh, but I, I did, I do, I mean, I, 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 they never like expanded on it, but I remember at least one or two people saying something like maybe he knew more, like he knew more or had some information or something. I don't know if it's just one of those things that like, you know, with all these conspiracies or they get all, all wind out like with OKC with the Middle Eastern stuff. And it's like, uh, or, or just, you know, other, or the, the white papers or whatever, where, you know, things go, you know, little, little, uh, almost lore expands out of it. Uh, I, I don't know if maybe that was part of it. I'm sure a lot of people attach all sorts of crazy theories to the call stuff. So maybe there's something to that. Maybe there isn't, I don't know. Maybe he saw some of the cocaine in Mina. I don't know, <laughs> but yeah. I, I doubt it, but I, I guess, yeah, unless you have something to add to that, I just, Though that was a fun little side. Uh, unless you have, you know, any more about that, I guess we can just kind of go ahead and get into his death. Yeah, I think they probably killed him because he might have had information that could have exonerated his son and his friend Scott Fall. Um, that's that's probably the most straightforward ex explanation. Um, but so it's June third, nineteen eighty three. The official story, I guess, is that. The person who had been letting him stay at his house uh, went outside. Uh, he was going to go fishing or something. And then he's driving out of his property and the FBI is coming in to set up uh, a siege, I guess, on the house. And he, he, the FBI 
puts this guy on the ground, says, don't move. We're going to go get Gordon. And I guess he called out to his wife, like, get out here. The FBI's here. Uh, so the FBI thought that he had tipped off Gordon, even though apparently Gordon had severe hearing problems, probably from shooting at people uh, and was watching TV at the time. But the, the wife comes out. So it's just Gordon in the house. Then you got U.S. Marshals, local police and FBI surrounding it. Uh, a sheriff and a marshal supposedly went on outside, went inside to apprehend call. For whatever reason, I don't know. Uh, the official story is that Call and the sheriff shot simultaneously and hit each other. Call dies. The sheriff goes outside and says, hey, I, I got Gordon Call. And then he like collapses. And this is where the official story doesn't make any sense to me because if the sheriff just told you that he killed Gordon Call, why would they do what they're about to do? which is fire thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition into the house. Uh, an FBI guy goes up on the roof and pours diesel fuel into the chimney. Uh, I, they claim that they were afraid that there was a secret network of bunkers or tunnels underneath the house that Gordon might have been hiding in, so they needed to, to smoke them out. Uh, they, so they, they're just pouring, pouring ammunition into the house for like the next hour. They even called governor Bill Clinton at the time to get more ammunition. They ordered like 8,000 rounds, had it delivered, kept firing. Uh, they wanted a gunboat, which I don't know exactly what that means. If they meant a helicopter or some kind of armored vehicle, she, Bill Clinton denied that request. I think they wanted to actually, along with setting fire to the place as they did, they probably wanted to demolish it totally like Waco to destroy all the evidence. Um, but for whatever reason, Clinton actually denied that request. So we still have a concrete shell of the building, which is where evidence was later found that calls into question this, uh, this official story. It kind of makes you wonder if they were kind of trying to, I don't know, stage it to make it seem like something else than it would end up being. And it kind of something fell through because it reminds me, you know, I mentioned the Middle Eastern angle of OKC. It's kind of my opinion uh, that I believe that that likely, uh, you know, obviously I I'm not asserting this. If anyone's trying to, you know, hold me to my words here, just kind of my uh, speculation is that the Middle Eastern angle was likely spooks trying to, you know, maybe you know, get the ball rolling on the terror wars a little bit early. And I think maybe some pieces fell through and it didn't work out the way they wanted to. And then they had to, you know, I kind of, I don't know, throw together whatever their story ended up being and uh, ended up being something else, you know, uh, but that's kind of the vibe. I get that. It kind of makes, I get that same feeling from this. Cause it just doesn't, doesn't make any fucking sense. Like how, what kind of, how are you going to sell the story? If anything, it sounds to me like they're going to maybe later try to make it sound like, Oh, there was yet him and, a few other hooligans and, you know, uh, and, oh, they're all dead now and we can't identify their bodies and they're all burnt and, you know, oh, they're all ashes. So, you know, just take our word for it kind of deal. Uh, it, that's kind of the vibe I get. Is, is, do you, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, that's kind of – it just seems too bizarre for – like there's got to be – like makes no sense. Like if you kill the guy, why are you going to dump – like it just it, – it's I don't know, just bizarre, you know? I, I think the most likely – reason for this is they were trying to cover up the fact that they 
executed call, a murdered him execution style with a gunshot to the back of the head. And they probably wanted to totally eviscerate his body, bones and all, to cover that up. Now, why do we think that the FBI and the U.S. Marshals murdered him, along with the fact that, like I mentioned, there's a gunshot to the back of his head? Uh, one of the police officers who was involved in the original shootout in February of 83 said that after that happened, a couple weeks later, he's in his office and there's a U.S. Marshals and FBI arguing, quote, uh, the marshal said he killed two of ours, so we get to kill him. The FBI agent replied, if you kill him, the public won't go for it. It will look like revenge. <laughs> if we kill him, it will look like another gun battle. So this is straight from a police officer who heard this. Like this is very credible information in my mind. I yeah. do think they murdered him. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Uh, I guess I, I, I agree sort of that it was covering up the execution if it was just the fire. The the firing the rounds into the building is where I'm like, it makes it sound like that. Like if you they just set fire to the building, okay, that makes sense. You're trying to destroy the evidence. But just, you know, just nonstop firing into the building is like, well, it just seems, I don't know, almost redundant. And also just like that's not going to have that same sort of destroying the evidence effect. If anything, it just looks, looks ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good, that's a good point. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe some of them thought call might still be alive, I think, uh, which again, doesn't make any sense. The sheriff, the official story is he comes out, he's wounded, but Hey, I got Gordon. He's inside, but apparently they they, they might've been afraid Gordon was still alive. So they're still pouring rounds after rounds, uh, burning it down. Yeah. Uh, the way, okay. Yeah, go. Go. Oh, no, uh, I, yeah. I, I just want to real quick back up in case anyone tries to hold me this to the later. I feel like I sound a little bit kooky where with my middle Eastern thing I said a second ago, but I want to expand on that. I was just looking through the FOIAs the other day and I was looking at the CIA FOIAs and I was looking at the, there was one particularly where they're talking about remote viewing. So and the CIA almost immediately came out with a remote viewer, which anyone knows what remote viewing is ridiculous but uh, the remote viewers were claiming to see iraqis and stuff like that so um I, i'm not necessarily taking the route that it was like a completely like the feds did it but i mean that's all obviously an angle you can take but and that's not even as kooky as some people make it out to be but you could also take it as like it was just completely a naturally they did whatever it happened mcveigh did this blah blah blah, and then they just tacked on some stuff to kind of you know it's kind of the whatever that quote is like never let a, a disaster go to waste or whatever the the, the quote is it's kind of the same idea like it doesn't necessarily mean they have to do it but they could have tacked it on at the end like well well we've been wanting to start a terror war so oh i guess it was iraqis <laughs> yeah. so. it's uh the guy who helped produce noble lie holland vanderhoffen i think his name he worked mm -hmm. He did research, field research with Wendy Painting, and basically Wendy was pursuing the right-wing uh, Nazi militia angle, and he was exploring Middle Eastern connections. And one of the in most interesting things he found, uh, according to him, was that the CIA in 95 was planning a big, big operation to take out Saddam, like an actual Bay of Pigs-style thing where they fund uh rebels to attack Saddam. And I think that his theory is that the Oklahoma city bombing would have been the impotence 
uh, giving the CIA justification for ramping up uh, Bay of Pigs operations, trying to take out Saddam like they did Castro. Oh, that makes sense. I never heard that. That uh, that checks out. Because everyone always, whenever I talk to people, that's always what they want. They always want like, a, okay, well, if they did this or if they tack that on, you know, if they or they took advantage of it, well, what's the end goal? And you're like, obviously, you can take the Gladio route and be like, okay, well, you got to look at the big picture. Or you can say, oh, but it's good to, people always want like a thing to point to, like a specific thing that happens. But anyways, uh, we're getting sidetracked here. Um, all right, Gordon Call. All right, now we already got him dead. I guess, is there really much more to add to specifically that? Or I guess we could probably start getting to how this ties into or why it matters now, uh, unless you think there's more uh, that pertinent to touch on in the actual story itself. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll leave it open-ended for you and see which angle you want to take. Yeah, the actual story itself, I believe like the counter narrative okay. uh, would be that they go in planning to murder call execution style. Uh, a U.S. marshal or an FBI guy does do that. Um, calls sitting there on his couch watching cartoons or something, reading the newspaper, boom, one to the back of the head. And then the sheriff goes, my God, you just shot the next door. That wasn't Gordon Call. That's the next door neighbor who looked exactly like Gordon Call. And then the FBI or a U.S. marshal shot the sheriff who saw that. And that's uh, another reason for their cover up because it was actually the feds killing the locals to cover up uh, all kinds of uh, malfeasance. And one of the weird um, pieces of evidence supporting this is uh, I think weeks or months after all this goes down, the concrete shell of the house is still standing and people are walking through it and they unearth uh, underneath some rubble there's like charred remains of Gordon's feet and hands. And uh, when, when, they sh when they autopsied the body, his hands and feet were missing, but they said they were uh, disintegrated in the fire. But it turns out that somebody chopped off his feet or hands. Uh, there was a cleaver that had been hanging on the wall that was now missing. It wouldn't have burned up in the fire, at least like not the, the metal part. And uh, the, their feet were right there. And so maybe they cut off the feet and hands uh, to in case they say, oh, we accidentally murdered this next door neighbor. We got to conceal the evidence by cutting off any identifying like thumbprints, finger, uh, uh, feet, anything that could be matched with the neighbor in case it later comes out that we accidentally killed this guy. Uh, so, so that's just another a weird and bizarre angle to the story itself is that somebody chopped off Gordon's feet. Some people believed it was to dehumanize them or, or something like that. But uh, yeah, really, really bizarre, really bizarre. Oh, yeah. We, I completely forgot we didn't touch on this because me and you talked about this a little bit before we started recording. So then it kind of slipped my mind that we hadn't mentioned this yet in this actual recording. Uh, but uh, yeah, um, it does make you kind of wonder what happened there. It kind of makes me think of uh Cause you know, it kind of reminds me of like Osama bin Laden and kind of how, like, you know, how we just magically killed them and then, Oh, we don't know body kind of deal. And it's like, well, did you like, maybe did he already die some other time? Did you kill him somewhere else? Cause it's like, obviously you would assume that he's either, or is he hiding somewhere? You would think they'd probably take care of that loose end. I'm of the opinion he died, either died before or they likely killed him or they're telling the truth. One of those three things. Uh, so I guess that kind of makes me wonder the hand and thing is maybe there's credence to that. And that like, 
maybe they killed him elsewhere, brought the body back later, uh, or maybe he they killed the one guy and then found him somewhere else in that uh, area and killed him and kind of did the hand thing to, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess to kind of have, uh, I guess because those would be the most uh, identifiable things would be the hands and feet, you would think. Maybe that was a, I mean, I guess it is kind of like haphazardly because it's just confusing. They're doing so many, maybe they intentionally built in redundancies in their cover-up toward the, the bullets, the, 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 the fire, the cutting off the hands. It's like, I don't know, I guess just in case they find a hand. I mean, you think if you, you burnt the place to a crisp, that'd be enough. Um, they did end up exhuming his body later. Do you? Uh, I forget. Did they? Did they ever really get a good um, uh, any way to ID in any way? Wasn't that like a big part? I believe at the end of the documentary they were asking for like uh, I don't know, like I don't know if they're looking for maybe DNA evidence. They were asking if anyone had any stuff of his or something yeah. like that. So I mean, did they ever? Were they ever able to really ID the body, whether it was the hands, feet, or the body itself? Because it kind of makes you wonder if maybe the hands and the feet were different than the body. You know what I mean? Like uh, as if they like cut off the hands and the feet of you know, say it was the sheriff or whatever, or one of these other people they killed, and then they cut off the hands and feet, and then able to, you know, then they end up getting Gordon somewhere else, and then move the hands and feet next to that body and got rid of the other body or something like that. I don't, I don't know. It's it's hard to put this together because it's so many yeah weird things going on at once. Yeah, <laughs> it's like sure. what the fuck happened here? <laughs> yeah, obviously they never blew the case out of the water. Unfortunately, I don't know exactly what happened with that. As you mentioned, they exhumed Call's body to try to um, confirm his identity or see how he died. But then the documentary ends with somebody appealing to the public, like we need. If you have any like Gordon calls baseball cap or anything that might have his DNA to match it. And I don't know exactly what happened, happened to that. Uh, one other conspiracy theory thing that I just want to add, it doesn't directly relate to what you were just talking about, but the guy who did the initial autopsy was um, the Arkansas state coroner, I want to say, and he's the same guy who ruled Again, he's working for Bill Clinton, and he ruled all these uh, Clinton so-called uh, suicides. He he was the guy who filled out the report saying, yep, Bill's buddy, that was suicide. That was also suicide, also suicide. Yep. So that this guy is corrupt as hell, and you cannot rely on his initial assessment of Gordon Call or just about anything else, in my opinion. I, for, I forget his name, but he's a pretty, uh, for the Clinton conspiracists out there, he's uh, pretty well-known. Yeah, because I know a big thing they brought up was his like uh, gunshot analysis, essentially, and uh, essentially it didn't make sense in the way the bullet would have traveled or, or the, the direction. It, it, it was just, I, I don't know, it was just weird. Um, but I guess, I guess this whole, all the whole hands and feet thing lends to, I guess it's a, a was a pretty popular conspiracy. I don't know if maybe it's died out now because it's been longer. You would think that. Uh, the conspiracy being that he, you know, actually never really died. He was still out there alive somewhere. Um, it, I, I guess I would assume that maybe that conspiracy kind of fizzled out because you would think that they would find him somewhere unless maybe he just went back to his family and just kind of lay low. I, I, I don't, I don't know what the whole angle of that conspiracy is. I guess you could under at the time I could get it because the whole hands, feet, the burning the body, all that. I guess you could be like, well, like what? Why are they doing this? Like, is he still out there? Uh, do you have anything to add to that? Cause it is just like, that seemed to be a, a common trend or a common theme that came up. It just, 
But I, I don't know. I, I just have to believe he's dead. It doesn't make sense to oh, me yeah. otherwise. <laughs> yeah, he, he's definitely dead. I could see why in the 80s and early 90s you might believe that because they never positively identified him. I don't, I don't think so. So, yeah, I, I would probably be raising the same questions in the late 80s. Well, is this guy really dead? Uh, but, you know, is is his son's been in prison for 40 years. I don't think he'd be staying quiet about that. I mean, this guy was, you know, he's the man. He, he wouldn't just be hiding. He'd be, he'd be trying to get his son out of prison. He might even have turned himself in uh, to just try to say, hey, I'm the one that killed everybody, release my son and my friend Scott. So yeah, yeah he's, he's dead and he'd be dead by old age by now and mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do one thing I noticed, I can't remember what ex, there was a couple times where it seemed like he was honest to like a fault. So it kind of makes me wonder if he really was the one that killed all the marshals. And, and, and I guess that would kind of lend credence that if he if he was still alive, he would have came out and just, you know, been been even if, say, someone got to him, you're like, hey, you got off easy here. Like, don't come out. He probably would be the kind of guy I'd be like, no, <laughs> like, yeah. no, I'm going to talk. Uh yeah, I guess that's kind of the vibe. Like, do you think? I mean, is it, I, maybe I asked you this earlier, but I guess with that in mind, kind of like his character. Do you think? Because he did say he he killed them all. He, like he killed them all, uh, and it seems he he really does seem to be like to a fault, honest. There, like he he you know you look at this life story there was multiple times he could have taken the easy way out and he never did so it would seem weird at that point you know not to so i mean do you just generally kind of you know think do you think that lends credence to his story does it do you tend to buy that or because or, i know there was a big uh you know key point with yuri where they said that i guess at one point he said that he wasn't sure if he shot first maybe he did which, you know, I guess that even lends more credence to the honesty aspect of that family in general and the way they were raised to be of strong mm -hmm. character that, I mean, it's honestly, it's borderline stupid. <laughs> Just, I mean, I maybe don't lie, but don't say anything at least. <laughs> well, so that's another disgusting part of this case is they extracted that confession from Yori when he was on death's doorstep, he's in the mm -hmm. hospital bed. Me might be on morphine or whatever. And he said, Oh, I don't know. Maybe I shot first, like totally in a state of shock. And they use that evidence in court. I mean, it should be totally inadmissible. He wasn't in, in the same state of mind. And if it comes to believing, uh, comes down to believing Gordon call or Rudy fucking Giuliani, I'm going to, I'm going to believe Gordon call seven days out of the week and to show you what kind of character this guy had, um, he killed two marshals, but there was a local police officer that he also shot, Steve Schnabel. Uh, he shot him like under the car. Uh, he saw the guy's leg, so he, sh he blew the guy's leg off. And the local cops laying in the ditch, and Gordon Call comes over, and the cop says, no more, I surrender and Gordon let him live. He took his pistol, took his shotgun, but like he didn't finish the job. He uh, went off um, and, and ran away and he definitely could have. And if he was a, a sadistic killer, like why wouldn't he have? Uh, so that shows you the kind of stand up guy that I, I think uh, uh, Gordon, Gordon was. Yeah. All right. And I guess to finish this out, uh, kind of why does this still matter today? Well, we still got two guys in prison and they're being held past the presumptive release date. 
and they're still they still hate the feds man i i think these i i would like to talk to these guys like they're still badass um if i could find the clip here or find a passage here uh there was a senator who wanted to investigate yori calls case in uh 1989 and yori from prison writes him like i'm not really impressed with your track record in fact if you know if we had the government that we should have we'd probably like hang you <laughs> so he, he tells this to the senator who's trying to like do a hearing about his case and help him out just like like totally based i mean <laughs> and these guys they the reason they're being held is because they've never admitted to being wrong or um being culpable in any way they've never expressed any remorse and they probably should so they could get out of prison i'm not advising this but i'm i'm with them they they acted in self-defense in my opinion uh so it was the 40 year mark of them being in prison was in february that was their presumptive release date and they had a parole hearing at least scott did a couple months ago and he refused to even show up because he's like, oh, this is rigged. Z the Zionist occupied government has already rigged this parole hearing. So, like, they're not doing themselves any favors. Like, they should just show contrition and, you know, they could get out. I'll do a story on them. <laughs> like, they could talk shit when they get out, but they're probably going to um, die in prison, unfortunately. And uh, which brings us to another point of why this matters is because with January 6th in Michigan, uh, this is the original anti-government extremist case that kicked us kicked it all off so they're not going to release two guys who could be viewed among some patriot people as as martyrs and yeah. to the point of right-wing extremism actually uh one point i saw is a uh, uh, one of the local police officers was later reading an fbi manual shortly after 9 11 that's talking about domestic terrorism and the FBI classified this case as the first case of right-wing terrorism in the country's history, which doesn't make any sense to me. Not only is it not terrorism, but like the Ku Klux Klan bombed churches in the 60s. I don't know where they're coming from. I, but to their point, it is like the certain flavor of anti-government extremism that continues this day in like the right-wing libertarian movement. It all it all really kicked off with Gordon Call. Yeah, uh Ken, that's because the, the KKK were the Democrats, all right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Democrats are the real racists. I mean, I think there is actually some credence to that, uh, but, uh, you know, whatever. I don't really care about that. Uh, the Democrats being the real racists, the whole right wing, left wing, it's kind of whatever at given time. Uh, but yeah, um, I appreciate you coming here. Is there any other last thoughts you want to share on this story before we get out of here? Uh, just a warning that this is like, so again, I, we're, we're framing this in the aspect that Gordon Call and Yori Call and Scott Fall were victims and even, I think, libertarian heroes in a way. This is not advice to anybody. This is not a blueprint to follow. Uh, for the feds watching too, I do not advise anybody to take the Call's routes. I posted a picture, I think Jose saw it, of Call's burnt body looking like a like a burnt chicken nugget. Like, that's how you're going to end up if you do this. And also, he really didn't do the movement any favors because 
after the call case is when the FBI started infiltrating all these militias big time. And it ultimately led to the Oklahoma City bombing. So stay peaceful. Yeah, this is why I advocate agorism, not sovereign citizens. But uh, you know, yeah. you can go be be a little bit more, uh, be a little more, uh, I don't know, subtle about it. I guess uh, try not to get caught. That's the goal. Because yeah, I don't really feel like you do yourself any favors by making yourself a martyr because you don't really end up a martyr. Really, they they find ways to uh, bastardize any sort of uh, you know movements like that, as we kind of laid out at the beginning and how it ended up being. Uh, you know, and, uh, I, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I do think we people should be in the lookout, you know, and this is why I think the good libertarians, the ones who actually understand libertarian theory, don't freak out whenever you're like, oh, my God, this person's racist. They're like, OK, well, are they advocating violence. Like, that's the key point. Like, are they advocating violence? And advocating violence includes advocating for government action, depending, I guess, on the action. If you're advocating for government inaction, I guess it's a different story. But uh, yeah, if you're if you're advocating for government action, but like, if you're not, if you're just some person with silly ideas out there, who fucking cares? <laughs> so that's kind of the, you got to keep your eye on the ball and not get caught on these side little points of whatever silly ideas they have if you're like oh well they really didn't like vietnamese tilted war workers like okay <laughs> how do what does that have to do with it were they trying to kill vietnamese tilted war workers no okay <laughs> like, all right then like uh all righty then i mean i guess they were kind of implying they were kind of trying kind of create their own little maybe they were sort of implying not not saying call were but the uh the Law enforcement were kind of implying these the posse comitatus folks are trying to create some sort of ethno state it is sort of stuff essentially which I don't know I mean I guess maybe if you get in the weeds maybe some of them were it seems to be call wasn't necessarily advocating for that although he had some silly ideas I guess I don't know uh, but at the end of the day it seems to be he was more of an anarchist that really didn't want government so so what uh, so I, I do think that's why the point is to keep your eye on the ball. Uh, don't get sidetracked by stuff like that. Uh, be just going to be like, okay, well, what does that have to do with anything? You know, and it's not to say racism's a good thing. It's just some people have ideas. If, you know, it, it, people are going to have ideas you disagree with. It is what it is. You know, move on. Maybe you won't be, don't have to be friends with everybody, but as long as they're not advocating violence against you or others, who cares? But uh, I appreciate you being here, Ken. Uh, you want to go ahead and drop your plugs again uh, so people know who you are, where they can find you, and that sort of stuff. Uh, headlineusa.com, the Libertarian Institute, on Twitter at JD underscore cashless. Uh, thanks again so much for doing this. I don't think this guy's really gotten attention from, uh, you know, the, the Mises Caucus flavored libertarians. And I think uh, people should know about this. So I, I really appreciate uh, the platform. Oh, no, no problem. Anytime. Anytime you have something you want to talk about, let me know. Uh, you always have a door open here. Uh, but yeah, with that, this is a uh, No Way Jose show. You can find me on YouTube, all major odd pocketers, Odyssey as well. Follow me on Twitter at Tower Gang Jose. Uh, with that, we are out. Like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. We're out. And broadcast.